Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Tuesday, July 5th, 2011. Even though it's a Tuesday, we're going to do what's typically a Monday show because Monday was America's birthday, the 4th of July. I hope you had a good time celebrating America's birthday. I spent the entire weekend with Brian and Kelly Black. Brian, of course, being the author of ITS Tactical, one of my favorite blogs on all things tactical. And Brian and Kelly and their son Trey are just great friends of the Spirigo household. So we spent our whole weekend with great friends. I hope you did the same. We blew a whole bunch of stuff up, spent too much money on fireworks. Uh, Brian and I enjoyed some cigars of a particular origin that you're not really technically supposed to enjoy in America today, the land of the free, the home of the brave. We enjoyed them anyway, and uh, a little bit of uh, really good rum uh, along with those cigars. So this was a great weekend for us. Hope it was for you too. And that is why we'll be doing today's show on Tuesday instead of Monday, because there was no show Monday. Uh, so this will all be your feedback, questions, articles, commentary you sent to Jack at com. Here's what I've been getting from people, though, about these shows lately. Too much news and articles, not enough questions from listeners and personal stories. I've tried to help with that some today. There's less articles in today's show. But I want to put it to you this way, folks. I put on these shows what you guys send me. And I would say that 80 to 90% of the emails that come in to me for this show are about articles and uh, news events and things like that. If you want more questions on shows like this, instead of asking me to do more questions, send me questions instead of articles and I'll do them. I actually enjoy doing things that are more personal to the, to the listener than news stories. But that said, we'll always do some news stories because there's stuff out there going on we need to know about. And we need to look at it from the, the, the modern survivalist angle instead of the way that we're told to look at it by MSNBC, CBS, Fox News, all of the other people out there that basically form it, shape it, and tell us how to eat it, right? And I'll tell, us how, I'll, I'll tell you my view of it, and then you can make up your own mind, and you can think for yourself. Before we uh, get into your questions and feedback, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, ShelfReliance.com. I'll tell you what, I love Shelf Reliance, and I'll tell you why. Because I am a big fan of eating what I store and storing what I eat. That's what I've been teaching you guys to do since I started doing this show in June of 2008. That's how long it's been. And Shelf Reliance has these great food storage racks that allow me to do that with normal canned food that comes from a grocery store. Or, in our case, a lot of what we keep in our Shelf Reliance rack is dehydrated vegetables that we store in FDA-grade paint cans. So they're made for food storage. And we get the little ones, and we are able to store those and just label them with a uh, you know, with a label. And it's just great to be able to go out and either throw chunky soup or something I've canned myself into that rack. And always know what's in the front is the most recent. Know how many cans fit in there. I can instantly inventory any product that we make as part of that rotation. And I'm always eating the newest and putting in, you know, or eating the oldest stuff and putting the newest stuff in the top. It works great. It's extremely space conscious. And then here's the big one. They're Thrive brand of food, guys. Um, I like Mountain House. 
I like providing pantry. I think they're both great long-term food storage companies. And uh, when you can get them and when they're in stock, they're great. But certain things, especially with the Thrive brand of food, it's just so high quality and tastes so good. Uh, their whole point was to come up with food that you would be able to store for 10 years, but you'd also be happy to serve to your family tomorrow. I think they've done a great job with that. So check out their food storage systems and their long-term storage food known as Thrive. Uh, next today, silverandgoldshop.com. You know what? Most of us have nieces, nephews, kiddos in our lives, uh, either our own kids or uh, you know, friends, children, that we end up buying stuff for. Birthdays, graduations, holidays, just because you only get to see your niece or your nephew once every year or once every other year when you travel to where they are. And we generally give them something. And we either give them money that they blow quickly on candy and junk, and maybe an enlightened parent puts some in a bank account, but that doesn't really, they can't touch that. Or some kind of plastic crap from China. I got an idea for you. The next time you're in that situation, how about you pick up some really cool silver rounds that tell a story about the value of silver and, and the history of our country from uh, silverandgoldshop.com. And how about you take those and you put those into some little hands and you explain the power and the growth and the increased value of our nation, our freedom, and having something of real value like silver backing and protecting that. And open young minds at a young age. I think it'll be well received. And I'll tell you what, every time I've put one in the hands of a kiddo, they've bounced. Um, they're shiny, they're pretty, they look great, and uh, they really belong in the hands of our kids. Because saving metal is all about, you know, saving for the future. And those are the kid. The kids today have the longest, in some ways, the darker future to deal with. We're going to leave them behind with a lot of debt. And this is one way we can uh, make a difference with that. It also belongs in your portfolio, too. Remember, I think about 10% of your wealth uh, should be protected with gold and or silver. So check out silverandgoldshop.com today. Remember to connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Those are the three big ones. Make sure you join our forum if you haven't already. There's a Ph.D. in preparedness waiting for you in our forum with information sharing like you wouldn't believe. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, uh, that's your way of giving back, and I try to give you an ROI on it. You get discounts to over 25 vendors. Uh, you get exclusive content available nowhere else. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks on day one for download. Remember, if you are active duty or prior service military or law enforcement, Send me an email before you join. I have a special discount just for you to thank you for your service. And with that, let's go ahead and get into today's show. I want to start out. I want to start doing this now, and hopefully I can discipline myself and make sure I get one every day. We did four money-saving shows, and I got so many tips, there was no way I could do them all. And if I did a fifth or a sixth show in that series, we'd never get all the listener tips. And I want these to keep coming in, too. If you want to submit a tip, just send it to me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSP Money Saver in it. And I'll, I'll get your tip online. Here's a tip today that came in from Greg. Greg says the following. Hi, Jack. I've been going weekly to an Amish community 20 minutes away because I get raw milk for $2 a gallon and free-range chicken eggs for $1.25. I guess that's a dozen. He doesn't say, but that's what I would guess. I also go to a salvage grocery where they, op they operate where the dented, out-of-date, and otherwise withdrawn groceries are sold for a bargain price and have been very helpful for our family with five kids. I guess so. you got to make the money count with five mouths to feed. Well, actually seven because mom, dad, and the five kids. I rarely have any problems with what I buy if I use it soon, but they'll refund my money on anything that was bad or stale when I purchased it. I have found that the more exotic the item, uh, then the bigger the discount. A can of tuna may only save a dime off the sale price of a grocery store. 
but a $5 gluten-free brownie mix can be purchased for 50 cents. I've even seen gourmet canned snails for a quarter. I should have bought some of them for ready-made fish bait. My communities have salvaged, many communities have salvaged grocery stores, but you have to learn that the expiration dates or best buy dates are a guide, not a rule. Greg from Missouri. Great tip. I've never heard of a salvaged grocery store. Something you guys might want to check out. As far as the snails for fish bait, no man. What you gotta do with your snails is you go outside, because if you cook them in the house, your wife's gonna yell at you. Get yourself a cast iron skillet, nicely seasoned, put that on your grill, melt some butter in there, chop up some garlic in there, throw that in there, little bit of basil, a little sprig of dill, take those snails, drain the, the, the liquid off them, because you, you don't want to cook them in their own liquid that way, it gets too strong a taste, drop them in there and saute them uh, until they're just, you know, really not even heavily cooked, just kind of warm through, because they've already been cooked in the canning process. And uh, I'll tell you what, um, it's hard to beat those things, man. They're awesome. They really are. Uh, I, I was skeptical, skeptical about eating them out of a can the first time, but uh, uh, my old buddy Hal, who uh, passed away last fall, was the one that turned me on to eating snails in a can, and they're pretty daggone good. Those of you with a vineyards near you, you'll go and you'll see that they usually stock them. And the one in Texas I used to shop at, had a, the same can with a whole bunch of the shells on them so you could make them all fancy and put them back in their shells. And a can like that was like twelve fifty, And they had the exact same can sitting next to it. They didn't give you the shells, which I don't care about. And it was like $2.50. So, and that was the cheapest I ever found them anywhere, you know, other than like a salvage grocery store. So you guys might want to try snail. It's better than you think it is. Um, here's the next one. comes to me from Carson. And uh, Carson says, hey, my wife is going crazy trying to find plants. This must be Carson from Canada. <laughs> he calls in all the time. He usually calls in from that truck where he's like, hi, Jack, this is Carson from Canada. Uh, it's not a very good Carson impression, I guess. But uh, you know, if you've heard him on the call-in shows, you know what I mean. He's, he's in this big truck vibrating around when he calls. Anyway, uh, my wife was going crazy trying to find plants we could grow and get to produce up here. Zone 1A, according to the third link, moving to a zero. Wait a minute. Are we supposed to have global warming, Carson? How can your 1A be going to a zero? That means it's getting colder up there. Oh, I'll leave that out today. And she came across this website, www.jeffreysnurseries.com, which specializes in zone 2 to 4 plants, and her friend told her about these places, www.ttseeds.com and uh, www.dominion-seed-house.com. Don't worry, I'll put all of these in today's show notes. They're Canadian, so I don't know what that means for those of you south of the border. Happy planning. They'll probably ship here, at least one of them. We'll have to check into them. But I get a lot of emails from people that say I'm in like zone 4, zone 3, zone 2, these really cold areas with short growing seasons. What can I grow? So Carson here from Canada has provided us with three resources for that. I'll put that in today's show notes. And if you know of any places like this uh, that are located in the United States uh, that would maybe save some people some money on shipping and the exchange rate, let me know and I'll include that in a future show. If anybody knows that, put, send it to me with like uh, cold plants or cold, cold weather plants or something like the subject line. I'll be on the lookout for that. Carson, you always contribute greatly to the call-in shows. Thank you for your email contribution today. Uh, next one, this comes from Randy. Randy says, Hi Jack, any ideas on some good deprogramming techniques? I've noticed that when I go to prep, my normalcy bias kicks in, and I tend to buy the gun toys instead of the foodstuffs. I don't know if that's normalcy bias. That might be a little bit more of a paranoia. 
It seems, or maybe it is normalcy because you're just buying what you like. I see what you're saying there. It seems that everything on TV's sole purpose is to program, not to prep. And rely on the government services to aid you in an emergency. So any thought on good techniques to deprogram? I was instructed many years ago to watch child programs late at night, but also became saturated with we can take care of you messaging, just looking for new ideas from Randy Zombie. Okay. All right. Zombie. Um, yeah, first of all, stop being a zombie. Zombies are programmed to eat brains and uh, run around at night, so don't call yourself zombie anymore, and that'll help with your programming. Seriously, though, Randy, um, it is a problem, and it is why... We can only blame the people out there that aren't prepping in any way, shape, or form so much. The society has created a, a complete society of dependence. I would say that 95%, maybe 90%, if I'm being kind, of our society is completely and wholly dependent on a series of systems that are run by mega corporations and by the government. And without those mega corporations and the government in place, that, that 90% of society would implode on itself in a matter of days. And that is a reality. And this is not extremism, alarmism, and I'm not talking about Mad Max. I don't think most of these people are capable of creating a Mad Max environment. They would just kind of sit down and wait for something to happen and uh, begin to go hungry. And that is exactly what the systems want. If you're dependent on a system, it ensures the system's survival. And I think that's what people don't realize today, that the systems have had society abdicate their responsibility for survival to the systems themselves. By doing that, the system's survival is almost insured, but yet the people's survival is at risk. So the system has become, if you've ever saw uh, the, the, the movie or the musical that the movie was based on called Little Shop of Horrors, and the plant that the guy is uh, you know, taking care of that came from outer space that starts having him kill, kill people to feed it, uh, sings this song, Feed Me Seymour. Right, And it's all about feed me, give me what I need, and if you don't, I'll eat you. And that's, that's what the systems are doing today. Feed us or we'll, we'll, eat, we'll feed on you. So what that means is the system is always, and I would say the systems is a better way to look at this, will always send us a message that you need us and you better give us what we need. Right now that's happening in government. The Republicans are actually holding the line in Congress. I wonder how long this will happen. No, we're not raising taxes. Yes, we're going to cut spending. If you don't do it, we won't increase the debt ceiling. So the president and ass clown in chief goes on the air and basically says, if we don't do this by August 2nd, old people will starve. Children will die. And the guy actually he said these things. You know? That, that's what he said. There's no two ways about it. And that's just another example of this. So how, when everything is throwing this at you, do you deprogram? Well, once in a while, try this. Turn all the stuff off. Just turn it off. Turn off the TV. Don't watch the news for a day or two. I promise you, if something really bad happens, someone will tell you. Right? It, it, I, you know, it won't matter where you are in the world. If an earth-shattering event occurs, you'll know about it. Someone will tell you. So you can let go for a day or two and the whole world won't stop. It'll keep going without you and you'll be better off for it. So take some news and media fasts once in a while. And that might even include the Survival Podcast. Maybe a couple days off from listening to me talk. Uh, though I think I help you deprogram. So I might be the one you can listen to. I know it's self-serving. But you know what? There's some other great podcasts. Uh, Self-Sufficient Homestead with Johnny Max and the Queen. Uh, Jason Akers is two podcasts. And, and there's a bunch of them out there that don't really you know, reinforce what everybody else is reinforcing. And I tell you what... If you find anybody podcasting about anything that's not just trying to be like the people on TV, because there's a lot of podcasts out there, there's just news shows and variety shows, 
Um, done with a little bit different of a twist, but if you find anybody that's actually going into a subject, that's a good place to spend your time. As far as at night, kind of deprogramming at night before you go to bed, try getting some nice fiction, fi fiction books, fiction books. And read some books that are, you know, fiction based, uh, thrillers, mysteries, stuff like that, that will pull your mind out of the day to day grind. I used to read business books and things like that and show material to prep for the next day, uh, before I went to bed. And I read Tim Ferriss's book, The Four Hour Work Week, and he said, don't do that. And I don't agree with everything in The Four Hour Work Week, but it's a good book. And one of the best ones was read some fiction before you go to bed and extract yourself, uh, from your thought process so you can deconnect and wake up refreshed. And then go back into that process. So uh, there's one you can do there. But the biggest thing I think you can do to deprogram yourself is actually just focus on the things that matter. Realize you have five primary survival needs. And the one you're going to depend on tomorrow, or the two you're going to depend on tomorrow big time, are actually going to be food and water. And start looking at ways you can provide that for yourself. Take a walk in the woods. Pay attention to what's around you. And realize that you probably, if you, if you usually go to buy the guns and the accessories, you probably have enough of those and focus on some other things. The reality is we can blame other people all we want. It's just like going to a, a therapist and realizing that we've done a lot of things because we're angry at our mommy or we're angry at our daddy or we had an unfulfilled childhood or freaking wham, whatever. And, and that may actually lead us to a realization. But once we've had the realization... Then the blame has to go the frick out the window. And okay, now I know why I do this. I can't sit around and let it be my crutch anymore. I can't blame somebody else anymore. I have to do it for myself. So the biggest way you can deprogram is to admit that that's where you're at. It's no one else's fault at this point. It doesn't matter how I got here. Now that I know, it's up to me. That one thought in your head will begin to change everything that you do. And I really think... Again, I know sometimes I talk about this a lot, but you're going to hear why in a minute, why I believe it is such a big solution. Grow a garden. Grow a freaking garden. Put your hands in the earth, grow a garden, and feed yourself. The, the way that can change lives is unbelievable. I'll share with you in a minute a story from someone who will tell you just how big a difference it can make. Um, real quick here, though. Good one from Paul. Paul says, Hi, Jack. I'll keep this short. I have a bunch of stuff on my key ring as my EDC. For those not in the know, EDC is everyday carry, the things that are always with you. So if you say, well, I have this as part of my EDC, and I say, show it to me, and you go, it's in my car, it's not part of your EDC, it's part of your vehicle kit. EDC is on your person, and unless you just happen to forget like to bring it with you that day, it's not part of your EDC. And if you do forget that day, not part of your EDC that day. So we all go places, and we need to... Lock our homes before we leave, open a building at work, drive a car to get there. So our keys are something we seldom forget. And if we do, we immediately remember we forgot them because we can't go where we plan to go or lock the door or get in. So a lot of people store things on their keys, myself included. So here's you know the same situation with Paul. He says, I have a bunch of stuff on my key ring. Is my EDC. Key rings make it hard to take stuff up. I purchased a tiny car banner. Uh, from a dollar store, it holds everything together and makes it easy to take items off like Leatherman, etc. Uh, what I've gone to are is, is like a big uh, snap hook, like something you would use to hang stuff with that you can get at a uh, at like a Home Depot or a, a hardware store or anything like that. A fairly large one that allows me to hang my keys on 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 something if I need to, but it also allows me to take any individual component off of there uh, pretty quickly. 
Uh, I have all the keys. Uh, actually, I have the keys on two separate uh, slot rings so that I can actually break off one set of keys or another set of keys if I need to loan them to my wife because she's locked hers in a truck or can't find them or whatever. And uh, But a carbiner, anything like that, having the, the ability to remove the items quickly is a great idea. So great tip, Paul. Um, going to a different question here. Aaron says... In a typical situation when stockpiling seeds, how many seasons should you account for? New listener, love your show. Aaron, uh, generally two at, at a minimum. And here's why. Next year, your crop of, you know, XYZ brand squash or, uh, you know, ABC tomato, because it doesn't matter what it really is. And so I'm being generic here, might fail. And if your crop fails that year, you need to have at least a second season's worth of seed in reserve. That's generally not much of a problem unless you're doing really large-scale farming because uh, it's easy to store a lot of seeds. And in fact, um, it's easy to store more seeds than you'll ever use. And I think that's good because it gives you the opportunity to exchange seeds with other people. And some seasons grow some different stuff. Uh, I have found my seeds, if they're kept in an airtight uh, dark environment generally will have good germination rates five years down the road. So um, I think that there's a lot of hype in the survival seed industry about having vacuum-sealed seeds and all. There's no doubt about it. If you have a properly stored seed, it will store longer than something in a Ziploc bag. And there's no doubt that a commercial sealer and commercial materials can do a better job than we can do for ourselves. But the reality is I store most of my seeds. I just take them in a Ziploc bag uh, push all the air out of them and make sure they're labeled and I roll them up and I keep them in ammo cans and they do really great in that environment I have them actually underneath my bed um, I tend to at times just open them up and go through them to remind myself of what I have what I haven't grown this year what I want to make sure I grow next year I make notes in my journal on that but two seasons minimum um, I really would tell you that with the quantities I plant and all, I generally have enough seed for the things that I know I'm going to grow every year for three to five seasons minimum. Because here's, here's the reason why. Uh, I might skip a season, then my germination rates go down. Now I need to plant more seed to get the same number of plants. Uh, another reason would be that if something happens and I have to rely more on my garden this year, I might plant more than I had planned normally. Uh, or I might want to trade them, and when I trade them, I lose the surplus. So uh, I would say three to five seasons is, is what I do. Two seasons is the minimum. Let's, uh, let's take another one here. Richard says, uh, and this is on the student loan stuff, folks, and I'm reading this one first so that it will make sense with a question that comes later. Um, I think there's a saying that, if you, they're saying that if you don't pay off your loan by retirement age, you don't get to retire. Is that your take on this one? And uh, the article is called Surfdom Via Student Loans. I'm not going to let this go. So those of you that are addicted to the concept that college is always a good idea for everybody, I'm sorry, you're wrong, and I'm not going to let this go. Because too many people in America are going to find themselves in a situation like I'm going to tell you about here. Let me read a little bit of this article to you. Uh, I'm just going to read you some of the quotes from the people in the article. Quote, I graduated from law school in December of 97. I have paid on my student loans. I have paid on my student loans, and on the, over the past nine years, have paid back an estimated seventy-five thousand dollars on a loan. When I graduated, was as little as a hundred thousand dollars. So he graduated in '97. He's paid his loans. He's paid seventy-five thousand dollars on a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. And here's what happens going forward. When I last checked the payoff amount, it was over $135,000. That's with paying $75,000. And over the last nine years, I owe more on it now than when I took them out. 
One of my loans is in default. They claim I owe them $23,000 plus, which somehow jumped from $17,000 in the span of 30 days. My two lenders are close to def- my other... T- My two other lenders are close to defaulting, and I'm unsure if I should just let them default. Um, let me read you another quote. This is uh, from the Miami Herald. It's been a, uh, a year since 23-year-old Carlos Tejano graduated uh, Kaiser University with an associate's degree in nuclear medicine. He's been working in retail and is an insurance salesman for some six years before then, So he has some work experience, too. But Torejo is still unemployed. And all the while, the money he took out to pay for his degree is building interest. Torejo is loaded with $18,000 of student loan debt. For people who are serious about their education, there's really no other option, he said. Folks, there's always another option. Um, And then this is going to be the one that I find the most disturbing. Um... This is from the Valley Advocate, and it's a quote inside this article. When they're talking, they're talking about the lenders here. They get 25 cents on the dollar on average. They get $123,000 back from the borrower on a student loan for $100,000. There's no statute of limitations. Sally May often brags that they can predict very accurately who's going to default. They treat these, they treat the people they predict will default much worse. They don't grant them forbearances. At the root of it is the lack of bankruptcy protections, which enables the whole system to start cycling up in this predatory fashion. So in other words, because people can never escape the loan, it's a predator loan. And they know that no matter how long the person defaults, sooner or later they're going to get their money. This is the other thing you need to know. You need to know this to understand how bad this really is. If I'm in the student loan business and I loan money to a student uh, in a, a government-backed loan, what happens is if the student defaults, the government pays his bill, takes the responsibility for the loan, then gives me the loan back to collect on it. And I get a fee for collecting on the loan I've already been paid on. Did you know that's how that works? Your tax money is used to pay the defaulted loan. The lender has now recouped the money. The money is now owed to the government. The same lender generally takes the loan back into their collections department, does the collections, is paid on the collections, and then uses some of the money that they collect to repay the government, but the government never gets fully repaid because it's handed over to the lender in the first place who's already been paid. That's how bad these are. Now, the reason I read some of this to you, and I'll put the whole, um, the whole article online, is because of another question. But there's also something that's uh, really, really um, just disturbing here. Um, there is a, a reality here that people are getting to a point where people are actually having already their social security Uh, garnished to repay their loan. So that's already happening. Let me read you the second to the last paragraph in this article. Wish number two, Colleen says, is the system would stop garnishing people's Social Security. I've gotten submissions for Student Loan Justice website from senior citizens who couldn't buy medications as a result of a, pre- a percent of their income going for their loans, he says. So... <laughs> These loans, I said that our children today would have their Social Security garnished, uh, but apparently the baby boomers who took student loans are having their Social Security garnished. This is already a problem. And these same people are the ones sending their kids and their grandkids to college under the same system that's got them in a garnished situation with their Social Security. This is insane. 
I'll, I'll leave it for now uh, because I'm going to go answer uh, this question that uh, that ties right in with this. And it's it, I, I just want you to understand how this whole system's working. So that you don't put your children into it, or you talk to your buddy before he puts his children into it. And I'm not saying not to go to college. I'm saying let's send the right people to college, and maybe all of your children don't go. Maybe you have four kids, and you wonder, how do I put four kids through college? The odds that all four of your children are qualified students for college, not necessarily additional education, but college, are actually pretty low. That would mean 100% of your kids are qualified to go to college. And it makes sense for them and their life choice and, and, and everything else that they want to do with themselves. So maybe two go. And maybe one goes and learns how to be a welder. And maybe one goes and learns how to run an x-ray machine or a, an MRI or God knows what else. You know, Maybe one of them is really an entrepreneur and they only need to take specific educational courses to further that. Just think before you end up in a situation like what I'm going to read to you here from Luke. Jack, I have a question on how to slay several student loan dragons. My wife recently graduated college and we're beginning to pay back these loans. The weight of them is crushing our budget because there are two of mine, $50 and $68 a month, and four are her, of hers. One of hers is $190. The other three said around $70 to $100 a month each. So this is a significant amount of, of uh, monthly payments here. We're looking at around $550 a month that these folks are paying for their two combined degrees. Um, and that's a lot of money. I mean, that can that can cover rent for some people on a decent place to live. And here's the scary part: in most situations, the payments will go up over time because a lot of times they'll start out with a lower payment and they'll increase them later in life to give you some time to get started in your new career um, that your degree has earned you the right to in the way that they market this stuff. Let me keep reading here. Um, two of hers are with Great Lakes. Great Lakes says they can't, in all capital letters, consolidate those two. One company, two loans, but they can't consolidate it. Anyways, I was wondering how to approach these. There are so many of them, it makes it hard to just do a snowball effect because with all of them together, there's hardly any room left in our budget. Should I consolidate with some other company? I don't know where to start. To be honest, the recent history of what the Department of Education has been doing concerns me. Should I rack it up with credit cards so I owe the money to a company rather than the government? I could really use some advice on this. Thanks so much for all you do. I can't thank you enough already after listening for a few months. We're in our mid-20s. We're a mid-20s couple and greatly benefited from your podcast, putting us in the middle of stepping stones of our three years of marriage. Thanks again. Looking forward to hearing from you. Luke, the problem with like using a credit card, pay off your student loans, is one a credit card company may be real hesitant to let you actually do it. Um, because it's going to basically be a cash loan is the way they're going to see that. So I don't know if you can even do it, and if you could, it would probably only be on one of the smaller loans, and it would probably come with a much higher interest rate and make a bad situation worse. I hate to put it to you this way, but the only thing you can do is deal with it. You're stuck. But you know you're stuck and you're in your mid-20s. Now unstick yourself before you're in your mid-50s or mid-60s and you're still stuck. Here's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to put all the loans together on your budget sheet except for one. And the one you're going to leave off is the $50 one you have, the lowest one. 
All the others you're going to make the minimum payments on. If you consolidate them, it's not going to change much. It's probably going to start growing the underlying balances even faster. You're going to have to not get in the situation that just came out of that article. That's why I read it before I got to you. You're going to have to take that $50 loan, and you are going to have to find out a way to pay about $150 a month on it. If you have to take a job delivering pizzas, if you have to live on rice and beans and ramen noodles, whatever you have to do, you're going to have to do this. And you're going to have to calculate how long will it take at $150 a month to pay off that $50 loan. If it's more than two years, you're going to have to figure out how to do it even faster. It has to be less than two years, and ideally, you would pay whatever it took to pay that off in one year. You are now going to have to roll that into your next loan, which is going to be your $68 a month loan. Okay, And you're going to have to tell your wife that you have to see these lines. The only reason you're doing yours first is they're smaller. Okay, so you're going to go to hers next. And you're going to have to roll that debt smoke snowball into that $68 loan. That one should pay off even quicker. Then you're going to have to take all of that money. You're going to have to take your wife's smallest loan, somewhere around 70 bucks, you say. And you're going to have to put it on that. And this $190 loan, and you're going to have to be paying only $190 a month on it, minimum. You're going to have to snowball this. Whether you like it or not, whether you want my answer or not, whether you feel like you can do it or not, this is the only way you're going to escape. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. One of you with your fancy degrees will eventually find a better job. Okay, uh, You will get more money, and you will get to a point where you can make this $650 to $650 in payments in a way that you can still live fairly comfortably, and you'll decide just to live with the beast. And then you'll be one of these people 20 years from now that owes more than when you started. This is your only option. I know it sucks. I'm sorry that it sucks. But anybody else in this situation, it's the only thing that you can do. It really is. you got to get rid of these things. And once you do, the magic will happen and you'll start having extra money and you'll email me and go, Jack, I, I got all this money and I don't know what to do with it. I'm afraid to invest it and I'm going to tell you just to keep some of it. right? Or buy some stuff you want. It's okay too. Uh, invest it in your preps. Uh, hold some cash. Put some money in a strong box and bury it in the ground so you always have some money you can rely on. You'll have that problem. Right now you have this problem and your only solution is to fix it. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry I can't do better for you. Somebody in a very similar situation, similar question, Rob. Rob says, what are our options for controlling our largest expense? A mortgage. What can we do to reduce our monthly payment or reduce our term? We purchased a new house two years ago. Now it's the only debt we have. Okay, you are so much better off than most people, Rob. That's great, okay? It's a sizable mortgage, especially for a single-income family. We don't have much equity, and with the current economy, I doubt we have any equity. I've refinanced in the past to lower my payment in terms, but that's not an option right now because of low equity. Nah. Is increasing my income the only thing I can do to make the mortgage less risky? Thanks for all you do, Rock on Rob. Um, no. Increasing your mortgage, your, your income is not the only thing you can do to make the mortgage itself less risky. One thing you can do, and not with the intention to refinance again and pull money out of the house or anything like that, one thing you can do to mitigate your risk is increase your home's value. Anything you can do that's mostly from sweat equity that would make your house more marketable, easier to sell, and sell for a higher price, you should do. That's risk mitigation. Okay? How does it work as risk mitigation? You have low equity. So what you need to do first is increase equity. Increasing equity will put you in a position where if you have to sell your home, it'll be more feasible that you can get out from underneath it. So you need to make sure that you keep everything in the best repair possible and do everything you can to increase the home's value. Go take a tiling workshop at Lowe's. Learn to do tile. Pick a room that would really benefit from tiling. 
Put down your own tile. You don't have to do it in a day, right? When you get, and that won't cost very much. Tiling a room is actually really cheap if you do it yourself. That's just one example. Plant a garden. That'll provide you food. That'll cut your food bill. Uh, and if you do it in a really beautiful way, it'll increase the value of your home. Plant edible landscaping out in the front that looks like beautiful landscaping, but you can eat it. Um, reduce how much grass you're growing. That means you won't have to water as much. That'll save you money. You won't have to mow it as much. That'll save you a few bucks on the gas for mowing. Uh, and you'll have more free time. And maybe with that free time, you can actually do something to increase your income. I'm also going to suggest that if there is any way possible, you consider your wife getting a part-time job. And I know your wife may be not working to take care of kids at home, maybe do homeschooling, uh, maybe just be there when they get home. But moms need time where they can kind of have something they do outside of the home. And a lot of times moms will do a volunteer activity. Well, you could do something very similar to that volunteer activity and get paid for it. Here's why. If mom can earn five to $10,000 with a part-time job and you are living now without that income, You do not need it. 100% of that income can then go into a savings account. And that's where I think it should go at first. Not to pay down the mortgage initially. Why? You should build up maybe ten to $20,000 of surplus cash. That is also, because your question wasn't, how do I re refinance my home? How do I sell my home? How do I get money out of my home? Your question was, how do I mitigate my risk? And make the mortgage less of a risk. If you have if you have the cash you're sitting on and you end up in a bad situation, you can then go back and rely on it. So mom might want to consider getting a job here. And it doesn't have to be a real time intensive job. It can be a part-time job and she could find something she loves to do. If it's simply not an option. If the kids are so young and dad works so much and the time that dad's not working, mom and dad want to be together, that type of thing is, is a full family, uh, and there's just no other options out there, or babysitting would cost so much, then, then you got to do it with what you have. But if there's any way to do it, I would consider that. Mom might consider starting a blog. That might become a source of income, uh, and it might be a lot easier for her to... Uh, to do that than to get a typical job. It might create tax deductions for you. If you create tax deductions uh, that are deductions on paper but don't really have material heavy costs, if we can convert some of the things we're already spending money on from a family expense to a business expense, we can put that money back into the budget. Mom might have a blog that makes $500 a year but might have a loss against it of $4,500. Uh, now we are putting money back into the household. There's a lot of creative things that we can do. And the biggest way that we're going to mitigate that risk, though, is we are going to make sure that we're doing everything we can to increase the value of the home and to have some cash in reserve. Those are the two things that will mitigate that risk. If something happens, if we know we can make house payments for 20 months out of a cash reserve emergency fund... We don't have to worry that we're going to lose the house. We don't have to start making stupid decisions. And we can focus on the problem and solving it versus focusing on the problem and wallowing in it. That's the best I can do for you in that situation. I can't wave fairy dust over it and make it go away for you. Sometimes when I listen to Dave Ramsey, I feel like people call in. It's always the same question, and they're wanting him to do some kind of magic. These are concrete things you can actually do. And anybody out there in similar situations with student loans or a home can do the things that I was just talking about. Um, next up, 
different type of question from Kathy. Kathy says, question, can someone harvest wild mushrooms growing in the woods and use them to enrich soil or compost? Uh, we have a very wooded lot, noticed all kinds of mushrooms growing everywhere. We have gone through the woods and removed a lot of downed trees and limbed up quite a bit. Cedar, oak, sassafras, sweet pepper plants, etc. Sweet pepper plants. Hmm. I'm not sure what you mean there. Anyway, we have a slope off a of sandy hill and would like to attempt the hugel culture bed below it. We've been adding kitchen waste and leaves and such to create a compost pile and by step hope to be able, by September hope to be able to cover uh, with dirt. Uh, I was wondering if we could use mushrooms in this, or will this create an issue since the mushrooms are not edible? Uh, it definitely won't create an issue because the mushrooms are not edible. You can certainly take in your hugel culture bed uh, limbs that have funguses on them of various kinds and, and use that as a way to provide spores and things. They're just not going to really grow once they're covered with dirt much. Uh, you, as you're applying organic matter to your raised bed or to your hugel culture pile, uh, fungus is a great thing. Let me put it to you a different way. It's not if you cu cut mushrooms down and stick them in your compost pile, it won't hurt anything, but it may very well not do anything to encourage mushroom growth in your compost. Uh, the mushroom may need a certain type of wood to be able to grow. Um, and what you have to understand with like when you see mushrooms growing on a log, the mushrooms are the fruit, they're not the fungus. As weird as that might sound. Inside that wood is this massive hair of mycelium. And that is the actual fungus, and after a certain amount of time, it will result in fruiting on the outside of the log, in which case it releases spores and hopes to then propagate the species and find other places for those spores to go. The cool thing about mushrooms, if you give, if you have organic matter and a moist environment and some areas with shade, mushrooms will do the work for you. They'll show up and they'll grow. Jeff Lawton refers to mushrooms in his permaculture DVDs as the teeth of the forest. They do the work of converting hard wood into a substance that can then be decomposed. Without the fungus, the woods last a lot longer. So we need moisture and darkness. And anything that you're using with fungus may very well help cultivate new fungus in the right environment. And there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't matter if it's an inedible fungus. And I'm going to say this to folks out there. Those of you that are going to harvest wild mushrooms, make damn sure you know what you're doing. Anybody can make a mistake. Anybody can make a mistake with, uh, with wild mushrooms, even people who have been doing it a long time. So it makes sense to really limit your harvest of mushrooms to a very select group of species. Be very familiar with the ones that you work with. Uh, and try to stay away from species that have a lot of mimics or uh, toxic mushrooms that look very similar to them. And uh, I think you'll do okay with that. But as far as gardening, encourage the fungus, folks. It's actually very good for your garden. Um, listen to this. Cody sends me an email, almost like I'm Jack. Spirkadamus is, I think, what Ron Hood used to call me. Um, Jack, you said yesterday that California is going to try to find a way to tax online commerce. It looks like they're going to pass a bill today, July 1, calling it the affiliate tax. The website features a one sale a day from dozens of websites. He's getting shut down or taxed to death. Thought you could use your platform to get the word out. Here's the link. And, um, you know, here's, here's the thing. You can read this article if you want to. I'm not quite sure that the guy on deal drop really understands the law in a way and exactly how it's going to affect him 
But oh, I guess it will because he he has affiliates selling for him, so he is the affiliate person. This is what California is saying, though, folks. Remember, I, I said they want to tax internet sales, but they're not sure how to do it, how to justify it. Because if I'm in Georgia and sell to you in California, it's interstate commerce, and neither Georgia nor California gets to tax it. And this predates the internet. Uh, if you ordered out of the Sears catalog and they were shipping from Chicago and you were in Virginia uh, back before anybody had a computer in America except for really super nerds, um, there was no tax then, there's no tax now. The Internet is just a different way that the sale takes place. But there's something the Internet's brought into the mix that didn't really exist in the catalog days called the affiliate marketer. The affiliate marketer is the person that goes to you know Sears' website or Cabela's website or anybody's website and signs up as an affiliate. And as an affiliate... What they then do is uh, market for Amazon or market for DealDrop or market for anybody who they sign up as an affiliate with. And what California is saying is if that affiliate is in California, then they're actually the ones creating the, the sale. You're buying from the affiliate, and therefore it's an in-state transaction, and they're going to tax that. Somebody sent me a similar law, I think it was from Virginia, where they're trying to do the same thing. It was one of the northeastern states basically doing the same thing. It might have been somewhere in New England. I don't, I don't remember. Here's the flaw with that. You're not dealing with the affiliate. You're not buying from the affiliate. The affiliate is not the one who's charging you. If I set up an affiliate program, let's say, for the MSB, which I'm not going to do, by the way. I've been asked about it because there's too many things like this I would have to worry about. Um, but if I set up an affiliate program and you referred somebody to me and they make the purchase, they're not buying from you. They're buying from me. You just sent them my way and I'm paying you a commission. You are earning an income off of that and you're already paying California income tax on it. Trust me, you're, gonna, you're taxed on your income. This has a real chance of being overturned by a higher court as being unconstitutional because of the way that they're doing it. And again, I'll put a link to the actual story so you can listen to it. Uh, but I want to tell you that the states where they've already done something like this, this is how they're doing it. They're saying it's not 100% of what Amazon sells, but if Amazon sells something to somebody and it's sold in California through a California affiliate that is supposed to retain sales tax and it makes a huge mess of the situation. This is why I say as all these states try to do this, what's going to happen? This will be our first ever national sales tax. It will be an internet commerce sales tax run by the federal government. And what the federal government will say is to create confusion that we have to step in and save the day. Uh, online retailers like Amazon simply won't be able to do business with their affiliates anymore. They'll close down all their affiliate programs and they'll only do business directly. And this will hurt small business people everywhere across our country. They'll say all the true things that it will do. And they'll say, so, we have a solution. This is what we'll do. We'll create an internet sales tax commerce uh, administration or something like that. And we will charge a flat tax on all internet commerce. And we will take care of it in the state where the transaction is generated. So where the buyer exists, that state will receive a portion and the federal government will keep a portion. So if they did seven cents on the dollar, on all internet sales, they would say that if it happened in California, California gets four cents of the seven, and the federal government gets three. And here's the thing. The bureaucracy they build around it will literally spend every dime they collect. It will, it will not do anything to help anybody, even through the crappy way the government tries to help people now. This is what I see coming to this world. I don't know how to stop it. Uh, because once the feds decide they want to do it, they will have the authority. And what will happen is all these state laws will get challenged, and the Supreme Court is going to have no choice 
but to say this is unconstitutional. There's absolutely no way to justify this because, again, the merchant themselves is the one completing the transaction. They're not in a wholesaler relationship. It's not like I'm sending, the, if the item was being purchased by the affiliate in California from Amazon and then resold to a person in California, that would be for state sales tax. It already exists. So this is a big mess that's coming. And here's how they're going to create a crisis with it. California passed this in an emergency session, so it went into force immediately. So some big retailers are just saying, fine, we don't have California affiliates anymore. We're done with them. We're just firing them, terminating them. Already happened. I think I think it happened to Tiffany. We had Amazon ads being run through the gear shop on the forum, and they just shut her. I think they just shut her down. I'm not really sure about that. I haven't talked to her about it yet because they're just like we can't do this. So they just shut down their affiliates in these states. So they're not going to get anything. It, it, that, that's what's going to happen. They're, these big, they're just going to say you're not going to get it, but they're going to get some through certain people that will comply with it, and they're going to start spending the money. And then the federal government's going to say it's 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 it, through the court system. This is unconstitutional, and they're going to say, "But we we already spent the money, and we're going to have to lay off state workers, and we don't have the money to pay it back, and then we don't know what to do now." And they're going to this. That's where this is going to go, right up there with the mileage tax, folks. It's going to be a new world of taxation like you've never seen before. Um, here's an, a kind of an alert from a listener. This came out to me on the second of July, so this is very very new. It's from Vic. Uh, Vic says, I work as a project manager for an electrical contractor and just received a notice that one of my suppliers, uh, from one of my suppliers, thought you might want to pass the word along to our, our family. It appears that China, who supplies 95% to the world, has cut back drastically on the production of all colors of rare earth phosphors. Due to this, my suppliers are raising prices on fluorescent lamps immediately by 5%. August 1st, another 25%, and 30 days after that, costs will go vertical. They don't know how much. My suggestion to all families, all family members, stock up now on lamps they use, such as fluorescent and LED. The pricing will affect purchases of LCD, CRT, and other monitor tech using rare earths as well. I have attached a couple of links that will give you more info if you need it. So I'll provide the links, but there you go. Um, if you want to know what to invest in in the next couple months, apparently it would be a good idea to invest in any common uh, fluorescent lights or LED lights that you use in your home because the price is going to go up on them. I take this as a credible uh, source on this. And uh, there are some links, that again, that you can take a look at. But I know what people are going to say. But Japan just found a whole bunch of rare earth deposits on the ocean floor. And we don't know how to get them out of there yet. We don't know how much it's going to cost yet. And there's real environmental concerns about uh, picking them up. There are also, folks, if you want to know where this new discovery is, it's to the east and west of Hawaii. It's closer to America than anybody else. But it's in international waters. That means anybody could lay claim to it and start mining it, from my understanding. Of course, the last people to do it would probably be us, because we're worried about the environment. But instead of us doing it and saying we're going to do it the right way, an environmentally safe way, we'll let people do it that don't give a damn about the environment and say, we can't do it because of the environment. Well, you know, you know who's probably going to be the first people that has the money and the resources to start pulling it out of the ocean mud? Let me guess. The Chinese. That might be what happens. Unless Japan does it. Uh, because it's very hard for anybody to lay claim to this just because the Japanese discovered it. But the short thing here, if you got fluorescent lights that you use, if you uh, 
have LED lights that you use, it's time to get some extras now. Don't wait till later. All right. Here's the next question. It comes from Dan. Dan says, I have a fairly large sum of money invested into a deferred compensation. Uh, it is a pre-tax investment through my work. I want to pull some out, pull out some of my money, but I was told I can't do it until I retire or only in an emergency uh, situation like medical. Any thoughts on how I might be able to pull out some of this money legally? Go back to your HR department and tell them they don't know what the hell they're talking about. You can certainly take your money out of your tax-deferred account any dadgone time you want to. You're just going to pay taxes and penalties on it. You're going to pay a lot of taxes and penalties on it, so you need to make sure that you actually are really needing to do this, and this makes sense, and you're willing to cut your losses, so to speak. But... Don't let them tell you you can't get your money. If this is a company pension where they've made contributions, you may not be able to do it. If it is a 401k with a company match, you may not be able to take any of the company's match because you may not have reached your vesting period yet where you actually own the money. Or you may only be able to take some portion of what they've matched. So their contributions, they may have certain rules about But your money that you contributed, you can withdraw and they can, your vested portion or your owned portion, you can withdraw. It will cost you. It'll cost you big time. You're going to pay uh, taxes and penalties on it. And you're going to pay taxes as earned income, just like it's paycheck income, because that's what it really was. And you had deferred it, so you're going to pay that tax plus the penalty. But don't let them tell you you can't have it. They're full of crap when they tell you you can't have it. And if they really tell you you can't have it, and there's no way you can get them to comply with you, I'm going to tell you this. Start looking for another job, because they're not an employer you want to work for. I don't know that it's illegal for them to create some kind of a, a situation like this. I am not an expert on the legalities of 401ks. Uh, but unless this is a pension, if you want the money, I know that it's possible to take. And again, if they set up some way you can't, I would start looking for another job. Uh, and when you, f I wouldn't tell them that. But when you find another job and you and they and you, they say, well, what made you know you have your little HR exit interview and they say, why did you why did you leave? Well, because I came to you and I wanted some of my own money. And uh, you told me I couldn't have it, and I came back to you and told you I understood the cost to me, and I wanted it anyway, and you told me I couldn't have it. And I pushed a little bit, and you guys shoved a rule down my throat that doesn't need to exist for your own benefit, because you wanted that balance to stay high. You didn't want employees able to do this. So I went and found an employer that understands that my money is my money, and uh, I'm going to go work for them now. That's what I would do, but that's me. I'm kind of spiteful, and uh, that's just the way that I've always been. Um... This next thing I want to read to you is what I talked about in the beginning. It's, uh, it's a tremendous story. And uh, I think that, uh, that we need to hear the two parts of this. It's long, but I think that we really need to hear it. And I think the second one is really going to make a big impact on people out there and understand what, what I've been talking about with uh, returning veterans and how much gardening and things like it can mean to them. Jack, a quick story on getting into prepping and the benefits of it. Over the last few years, I have transitioned into a prepper lifestyle. It happened shortly after my wife at the time, and I had a, had kids. About the time I started my own business, a security company, I had always had a hard time getting her on board with prepping. I looked into a company called Town and Country Foods uh, and had a sales rep come to the house and convince her of the benefits of storing food. So I had her on board along with a new pile of debt. I was able to get her on board slowly in regards to some other things. Uh, as well, 
but when I planted two cherry trees and an apple tree in the front yard, she thought I was nuts and warned it was going to be a cleaning mess that the fruit trees make. I kept trying to pay off her debt, and she continued to rack it up. She had about with drugs and alcohol and decided to leave me and the kids for another life uh, with her new beau uh, at her her new N.A. friends. Uh, I don't really get that. Uh, prepper problems solved. No more credit card or consumer level debt. Student loans and mortgage and truck payment remain. My company ran into a rough spot, raising gas prices and the loss of a few contracts due to continued economical downturn. And some contracts being seasonal caused us to go back into the red. I had to lay off several employees and double my workload, which was already maxed with the whole single dad thing. I cut my salary to a bare minimum, enough to pay the bills with no extra Pulled the plug on the cable and home phone. We lived off the food preps for about five months uh, with without more than three trips to the grocery store. The most expensive being $50 because my dog food preps weren't at the same level as the others. The eat what you store, store what you eat concept came into play. Most of the food was uh, what we eat fairly regularly, but I didn't have a store of beans and rice uh, that beforehand never made it to the table. Now I am starting to rebuild my food preps with beans and rice are part of the regular diet. I started listening to Snow's podcast, that's Chef Keith Snow's podcast, and visiting his site. I've made quite a few of his base recipes for pastas and rice dishes. My favorite new dish is pasta with olive oil, onions, and garlic, some Parmesan cheese, canned hearts of palm, my own addition, followed by arroz con pollo, which is chicken with rice for those that don't habla. Uh, I have adapted a permaculture esteem in my backyard. It's quickly becoming the envy of the Joneses rather than the other way of the round. I gave away my weed whacker and gas mower and got myself a scythe and cycle and push mower for the yard work, though most doesn't even get the treatment. I dug a pond lined with clay and, and, and swells the length of my yard to catch rainwater. Uh, it swells the length of my, uh, my, uh, my yard to catch rainwater from the downspouts to fill. It slowly drains between the rains and I don't water anymore. Uh, raspberry patch, blackberry patch, grapevine, uh, serviceberry bush, nanking cherry bush, ash tree, Blue spruce, mungo pine, and Douglas fir are planted in the backyard with a variety of herbs throughout. Gee, there's a lot of plants there uh, that I've said on the show. I'm feeling pretty proud of this myself, folks, as I read it. Uh, the conifer trees are, are to acidify the soil for a portion that will be blueberry bushes once the soil is ready. I hope to add them next spring, along with a bat house, beehive, hazelnut bush, and aspen maybe, and hopefully get my get back on my feet uh, completely a photovoltaic solar system, at least as a backup. I'm debating that once the dog passes. He's a Brittany Spaniel, and the critters would stand a chance. Uh, I've seen him jump about four feet to take a sparrow out of the air mid-flight from the backyard. I may then add rabbits, ducks, and maybe a hen or two, all free range. I figure they will stick around if they do make it out of the six-foot fence built to keep two dogs uh, one jumper and the other a digger won't find their way for quite a few predators a chance to return. I also found a six-foot bull snake that has made the area home. That's great. Keep the snake. He's uh, he's going to keep your rodent population in check. I do think we are in for a shit as you as you in. We are in for a shit, as you called it. I don't see the hammer falling causing roving hordes of paramilitary cannibals or mutant zombie bikers, but it doesn't have to be Tiawaki to need a fallback. The shit hit the fan for me and mine recently. In 2004, in uh, our Ramadi, Iraq, I was with G Company G, 2nd Battalion, 4th Mar, and we were fighting uh, through the streets. They only had occasional power and no running water or sewage. 
Occasionally there would be an Iraqi on Iraqi on Iraqi violence and murder in the streets. Besides us, there was little semblance of law and order. The ones IPs uh, that were there were so the Iraqi police that were there were corrupt and scared to do their job due to kidnapping of their families, as was the case with the governor. I doubt we will ever fall below that point. As the cities go into receivership, there will be no one left to run the water treatment plant or other services that municipalities have monopolized over the years, causing shortages and outage. I figure, the, my, I figure private industry will step up where they can, but it will be a while before they can pick up the drop ball. My end goal is to be able to take care of me and mine in the meantime. My employees are all welcome as well, as I consider them family and taking them into consideration for preps. My garage couch is even caught in the home office. I've housed many of them from time to time. They're also brothers in arms, as my preferred employee is a former Marine uh, as well. People accuse me of trying to start a, start a militia between them, uh, the preps, and my armory. They can blow. Thanks for your guides along this path. You've been a tremendous help, Dan. So you hear Dan's story of how prepping helped him. Now I want to read to you... Uh, Something that's going to be maybe hard for me to even read the entire thing without getting a little choked up because I want you to read or to hear the rest of the story here and the struggles that that he uh, went through. When my wife left me and, unre and unrelated, my company had slipped into the red and I was on the brink of failure. I felt like I could do no right. Everything I touched failed. I slipped into depression, not just sadness, but a true life depression. I was unable to walk down the street without seeing a bus and thinking about throwing myself underneath it. I would regularly lie on my bed with my .45 pressed against my temple. The only thing that stopped me in my kit was my kid sleeping in the next room over. When I would sleep, I would, go days with, I would go days without it. I would have nightmares regarding Iraq. I would be returning fire in a fight and unable to hit the enemy. My brothers were following, uh, falling all around me, dying in the streets. I was unable to do anything. I started obsessing about my fallen brothers. I would go through my pictures, many of them hunting pictures, and watch and rewatch video clips of firefights I was in. Over, over all of the time I was in Iraq, I lost 35 of my brothers. And over 250 of them were wounded. I was showing all of the classic symptoms of PTSD. And when I reached out to the VA, I had always resisted because of society stigma, PTSD, PTSD suffering vets, uh, and my own, that all of the people suffering from PTSD are malingers trying to get additional VA benefits or were just weaker, all around weak-minded. Under the pressure of family and friends, I was diagnosed with PTSD and put on di Doxyfin and Zoloft. The drugs helped for a while. I stopped thinking about and planning my own demise, planning on my own demise, but I was far from cured. I had no energy. I couldn't get out of bed. At least I was sleeping and pretty much didn't care about anything. Gee, and his business was suffering at the same time. I'm not surprised. I'm sure there was some economy things there, but um, I'm sure that this state of mind doesn't help a man run a business. I'm amazed he got through it. But don't worry, folks. There's more to the story. You already know what he did. I started working on my backyard transformation partly because it was always something I wanted to do, partly because I didn't have anything else to do. The TV cable was unplugged, and because I was beyond broke, with my downsizing of salary in my company, I could get some release from work on the cheap. I kind of got obsessed with doing things in my yard, and it took over my free time. I stopped taking my medication, which returned other benefits as well. I got my sex drive back, and I had more energy than I had for a long time. I was able to return to my bed, which I hadn't slept in for about three months. I'd slept in my recliner in my living room, my house with the exception of the mud track throughout the 
throughout from the dog and kids was clean and my family uh, that had stepped in and pushed me to get VA handed back my firearms collection. Fireworks don't stress me as much as they have in the past. I can go to crowded places. I still don't like to, but I don't get the same feeling in my chest and I have noticed that I don't watch the rooftops for snipers or the sidewalks for IEDs anymore. On a side note, my kids now have been eating the weeds. I have a lot of common mallow, purslane, and dandelion in my yard. We have add the purslane and mallow leaves and dandelion leaves to salads. My son, Declan, who is three, would rather go outside and pick the fruits, cheese wheel-shaped seed pods off the common mallow, or a handful of cherries off the trees in the front for a snack instead of... Uh, something from the cupboard, and my daughter, Addison, who is five, and I make mallow water, which we turned into homemade marshmallows that she's excited about roasting over the fire pit. She helped me brick in the backyard. She had also, after receiving a piece of candy from a neighbor last night, asked if they had any strawberries or fruit instead because the candy had too much sugar. They have also begun uh, using their imaginations for playtime and are used to no TV that Uh, at times in the past had been a babysitter. Not just me, but my children are all better off from a little transformation that started in the backyard from falling on hard times and causing us to live off our preps. Keep up the great work. Keep up the work getting others to unplug themselves from the matrix. And again, thank you for the guidance since I decided to take the red pill, Dan. Um, I don't know what else to say. I If you want to know why you should prep and why you should be prepared and why you should plant a garden and why you should feed yourself and why you should teach your children that there's a better way to live, that there it is. And I have to tell you that uh, when I think about the Survival Podcast and I think about when I started it over three years ago, this is not what I thought I would be teaching people. It's not what I thought I would be learning. And today, I think this is the community. This is this is who we are. We're, we're not the paranoid people that the government makes us out to be. We're people that have figured out that we can heal ourselves and we can live better lives. And if we do it right, we can be part, hopefully, of healing our nation. Dan, thank you for your service. And when I say that today, I don't just mean the time that you spent in a really bad place losing friends to injury and death. I also mean thank you for your service to your country afterward. Thank you for being courageous. The coward's way out would have been to use that 45. But what you did, standing up for your family, taking care of your kids, teaching them how to live, and putting your life back together, employing people, giving your fellow service members a place that they can work and use what they learned to protect others. That's service. That's as much service as, as anything you did while you were wearing a uniform. And I appreciate you for it. Thank you. And uh, just know that this community that we have here in TSP is better because of people like you being part of it. It's, uh, it's really an amazing and impressive thing to hear your story. And I, uh, I had one more thing for you today, but I'm going to let it go to a later show because I can't, I can't do anything more than, than what I've done today to tell you why it's so important that we keep doing the things that we're doing, folks. These are the stories that the, the media is not interested in telling. I hope someday that uh, I'll have enough, uh, enough influence 
that I can tell these stories in a much broader way than we do now. But until then, I need your help. Keep sharing this show. We've built something special at TSV. There's other people out there doing sort of what I do now, but there's no one that's doing it this way that has this type of feedback loop coming in. And I would like to tell you that stories like Dan's are rare, but they're not. I get stories, not maybe quite this detailed or dramatic, but I get stories like this almost every day. It's, um, it's humbling, and it's a huge responsibility. Uh, that I've created for myself and I'm, I'm very grateful to have the responsibility and I hope I keep doing a good job for you guys with it. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that are hurting really bad. Uh, they're hurting right now. The shit has hit the fan for them. It's hit the fan because of emotional distress from being in places like Iraq and Afghanistan or it's hit the fan because of the economy and it's going to keep happening. It's always happened, so it'll always keep happening. And there are certain things that are going to increase the numbers of those people in the future. There's a lot of people that are going to go through what Dan did, and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not there yet. They haven't even realized that they're that wounded yet. Um, it might be five or ten years before they, they really start to deal with this, and we need to help those types of people. And the way we do that is to set up solutions for people instead of focusing on problems. And who knew that a survival garden would actually be a survival garden in a real way? Something that would actually help somebody survive by giving them a sense of purpose. That's just awesome. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dan. And thank you again for making the courageous choice. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Show you.